This is the second Sunday after Epiphany, and now for a few weeks we enter a brief uh, period of Sundays in ordinary time, green Sundays again, and the Sundays in ordinary time during this time of year, like all the green season, the long green season, focus on the nature, costs, the ways and means of Christian discipleship, but this time of year it's tinctured with a theme that runs through, a thread that we follow, which is the manifestation of Christ to the world. Christmas is the season when we celebrate the presence of Christ to the church, and we understand that presence to have something to do with each one of us's internal, emotional, spiritual, and mental states, but also the community of faith who reflects on the nature of that presence the affirmations that that presence brings to the community of faith, the goodness of our humanity, the possibility that each one of us can achieve the highest of our human potential, that it is possible for Christian people to be joyful, and that we are to be people of peace, people of the shalom of God. So Epiphany, after the short season of Christmas, Christmas comes and is about how we take that presence and make it manifest to the world. So this manifestation, again, is both corporate and personal. How do we make manifest the presence of Christ that is in each one of us that we have been given through our baptism? How do we do? I do this every day, the Sulpician method. I get up And I say, Jesus before my eyes in adoration, Jesus in my heart, in communion, and Jesus in my hands, in cooperation. And so how do my habits of being and relating get affected by those commitments and that desire to become a transparency and a reflection of God's grace and love? Don't be too heroic in uh, thinking about what you have to do in circumstances like this. You need to be the best human being you can be, and that is deep growth in the spiritual life. Yesterday, I was at a conference in Salinas all day, and the Reverend Melissa Skelton, who was the presenter, reminded us about St. Benedict. Uh, The Episcopal Church, the Anglican Communion, is deeply, deeply affected and influenced by Benedictine spirituality. The Book of Common Prayer in the Anglican Church, in all of its varieties, is a deeply Benedictine document. St. Benedict of Nursia was one of the great masters of the spiritual life, an enormous amount of practical reason and common sense. He said, spiritual maturity is a life lived well. So when you think about the spiritual life, remember what I say all the time. The spiritual life is the whole of life. Body, soul, mind, spirit given to God in love. That's a quotation or a paraphrase of Thomas Merton. So spirituality is life. It isn't some abstruse set of uh, principles, some exotic series of practices, some remote location you have to go in order to get spiritually centered. It's learning how to be the best human being 
that you can be because Christmas and Epiphany is the affirmation that God became a human being. That was great, God's great yes to each of us. What Jesus Christ is by nature, we become through adoption and grace at our baptism. And so he not only constitutes the template for us, we have the possibility and the potential in our life and our relationships to be a template for others as well. Today, in the readings from Isaiah, from 1 Corinthians, and from the Gospel according to St. John, there are some sub-epiphany themes that are talked about here in terms of the ways and the means of manifestation. They're about the uh, centering the whole of the church's self-understanding in the person of Christ, understanding the importance of servanthood and Jesus as a servant, and the universality of the church and its importance. Many years ago, I was at a clergy conference in this diocese, and it was conducted by uh, the Reverend Herbert O'Driscoll, who was a, a Canadian Anglican pr- priest. He's famous, written a lot of books. And he gave this presentation on post-modernity. And in the course of his presentation, I never forget this, he said, any spirituality worth its salt institutionalizes. And you and I are living in a culture that doesn't believe that. They would prefer to say, I am spiritual, not religious. And what Herbert O'Driscoll was getting at is, you need to have a container for this spirituality. So today in the readings from Isaiah, for example, the presence and the power of God is being described as being in some way uh, made present through the prophetic office of Isaiah, who has been called by God since he was in his mother's womb. And he was predestined to do this as an affirmation that for each one of us, God is present in the past, in the present, and in the future. Now, you know, in this particular passage from Isaiah, in biblical scholarship, we call it the second of the suffering servant passages in chapter 49. And Isaiah is speaking about how the prophet will suffer because of his, uh, the necessity to fulfill the obligations of his prophetic office. But here's the thing. Early Christian people, particularly Jewish Christians, are going to look at this sacred text, their sacred text, and they're going to say, you know what? If we'd have only read this with eyes open, we would have clearly seen now that in the person of Jesus Christ, we see the fulfillment of our understanding of the servant, the suffering servant, and how we see in Jesus the unique focus of the divine presence. And what this gives us is an affirmation that God has been present to God's people in the past, in the present, and in the future. So each one of us will be able in some ways, big and small, to exercise our own prophetic office, to be able to understand that. But more to the point, a wonderful passage in the piece to this servant song 
is the affirmation that these words and these comforting uh, proclamations about God's unconditional acceptance, love, and forgiveness are not just for the privileged few. They're not just for the people of the covenant. They're for everybody. And God's saving embrace is now calling each one of us to come within it and to be the recipients and also the spokespersons for God's unconditional acceptance, love, and forgiveness. And so the early Christians said what was said in chapter 49 of Isaiah is exactly what Jesus did in his earthly ministry and in his mighty works. He called everyone to come within God's saving embrace. And that call and that invitation exists now for everyone. Paul, in 1 Corinthians, is describing uh, the importance of the church. Some of you, we read this stuff and you say, who in the world is Sosthenes? <laughs> to our beloved Sosthenes, who's he? Well, just so you know, Sosthenes was the head of the synagogue in Corinth. Paul, the great apostle to the Gentiles, would always come to a big city in his missionary work and he'd hook up first with the synagogue because that's his tradition. And from there he would operate into the Gentile community. And of course we began to see as Gentiles converted to Christianity, they began to be part of the synagogue community as well in the early days of Christianity. So Paul is speaking to a group of people in Corinth, well-heeled, self-satisfied, narcissistic, and on the bleeding edge of the dysfunctional church movement. I always tell you this. You know, they're very self-satisfied about who they are. Paul is giving them, in so many words, Herbert O'Driscoll, any spirituality worth its salt institutionalizes, and you're part of something that's bigger than you. You know, in my late teens, when I became an Episcopalian, that's what I found out. I'd come from a rather exotic form of homegrown American religion called Christian Science, the bosom of Mary Baker Eddy. Which always reminds me of that story I tell Queen Victoria riding in her carriage with one of her ladies-in-waiting who turns to her in the carriage and says to the queen, Oh, mom, isn't it comforting to know that when we die, we shall be in the bosom of Abraham? And Queen Victoria says, I will not be in the bosom of Abraham. <laughs> so I guess when you're the Queen of England, you can get away with that, right? I hope she wasn't in for a surprise when she died. And goes, oh, no. Anyway, it was sort of a highly individualistic kind of uh, uh, refracted way of looking at uh, the Christian faith and life. So when I became an Episcopalian, I thought, you know, this is something that is way bigger than me. Way bigger than me. These sacraments, this tradition, 
the fullness of the biblical witness. This is bigger than me, and more to the point, it isn't dependent on what I think about it. It doesn't matter whether or not I think it's true. So that can be kind of a humbling experience. And you can begin to say, you know, this is something that's bigger than me. Paul is at pains to say this. Each church, St. Luke's church, sometimes is interpreted as being the church with a capital C is the sum of all these churches with a little c. So we add all the little c's up and we get a big c. No. Paul means this is the big c. St. Andrew's is the big c. St. Mary's is the big C. We're all the big C coming together to be the big C. So the responsibilities and the obligations that we have with regard to how we become the transparencies and reflections of God's grace and love rest on everybody, not on people who think, oh, we can't do it, we're little C. You know? I think, isn't there in the Silicon Valley some sort of a term called synergy? Right? (laughs) The synergies? Well, there is. You know? The thing is bigger than the sum of its parts, is the point. And that's what Paul is getting at when he begins his Corinthian correspondence to a group of people who uh, thought they had the last word on these matters. We'll have more to say about 1 Corinthians moving forward. Finally, in the gospel, we have an example of what my teacher, O.C. Edwards, said many years ago in seminary. It's not as important what the Bible says as what the Bible means. And so each of us in some way need to be a student of what's going on. You know, we read today an affirmation of the servanthood of Jesus, a word about that in a minute, but we also are dealing with a concrete pastoral reality on the ground. And what that is, is that the community of faith that wrote John's gospel, a tradition that is different from Matthew, Mark, and Luke, had a circumstance in front of them that they had to in some way deal with. For some of their members it was an embarrassment, for others less so. And that is this. There were people around during the time of Jesus and after who believed that John the Baptist was the Messiah. They're still in existence in the ancient, in the, in the Middle East. They're called the Mandeans. And this group of people uh, firmly believed that John the Baptist was the Messiah, but there were former followers of John the Baptist who understood now that for them... John the Baptist constituted the culmination of the Old Testament prophecy in his announcing of the coming of Jesus and in the things that he said today in this part of the first chapter of John's Gospel and that they're there to set the record straight in the Gospel witness about how they understand who Jesus is. Now when we understand the term servanthood, It can have um, 
negative con connotations, particularly in our own day and age. But let me go, in it, go at it from a different point of view. About seven or eight years ago, there was, a, there was a study in the Episcopal Church that was done on the most successful episcopates in the American Episcopal Church. Bishops who seem to have done well in, during their tenure in their diocese. And what was it that, that they did that seemed to be uh, effective? And they described this effectiveness as mutually accountable, collaborative, and servant-driven. So do you think that this is just an ecclesiastical good idea? I bet you that there's some things even in business and industry that might benefit from mutually accountable, collaborative, and servant-driven. So when we speak about servant ministry, we speak about a certain kind of self-giving, but we also speak about the cultivation of the right kind of humility. Most people believe that being a servant or being humble has something to do with an overweening self-abnegation, a groveling, a kind of self-deprecation. The medieval theologian said, humility is the quality of knowing yourself. Thomas Aquinas said, it is knowing how high you can reach. What is the height of your reach? Now, in a, in a uh, culture where, you know, entrepreneurial zeal is a high value and, uh, you know, we always wish to reach beyond our grasp often or think that's a high value. And certainly we ought to stretch ourselves. But it also seems that we need to be realistic about limits. And we should be equally realistic about talents and abilities and not hide them under a bushel. And so a person who it reflects true humility is somebody who is able to own what they do well. And to place it at the center. And to seek always to strengthen it and to develop it, and to build it up. So if you read the New Testament and you read the Gospels, you see that uh, Jesus Christ operated under that model of servanthood and humility. And we get a glimmer of that in the references that John the Baptist makes to Jesus today in John's Gospel. So we learn something about the, the nature of servanthood, of self-giving. This week, uh, give thanks for the opportunity to uh, uh, give of self in big and small ways. Give thanks for the church with a capital C. Scripture, tradition, and reason, the container for how we understand who we are. Yesterday, we heard mind, heart, habits. Jesus before my eyes in adoration. Jesus in my heart in communion, Jesus in my hands in cooperation. Amen.